Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. Got a great show for you today that I'm really excited to share with you. Compliments of Nick Hawks, who interviewed me a few episodes ago on his own podcast, the Paleo Treats Podcast. Nick Hawks is a former Navy badass and uh, has done the Leadville 100, hiked Mount Whitney in his sandals, sailed a sailboat from California through the Panama Canal up to the Caribbean. He's done all kinds of really cool stuff, uh, classic adventure and interviews adventurers on his own show. So I invite you to go check that out. But about a year ago, he saw the Rockies Traverse, the project I did across the Canadian Rockies with Will Gadd, got super inspired to learn how to fly. Total newbie, uh, but he keeps hearing on this podcast all about ground handling, and so he's taking it really seriously and decided to jump in with both feet. Uh, I think in this show we learned that he's about 98 minutes into his own career, but he's uh, tackling ground handling and wanted to understand why it seems like the new level of learning, uh, people just think of ground handling as getting the wing up overhead and getting off the hill and that is definitely not what we're talking about with ground handling that's the very very first baby step so a lot of our listeners have also been asking about ground handling and can I expand on it and Nick thought it'd be really cool to do a show dedicated 100% to the art of ground handling so that's what we've done here Uh, before we get into the show I wanted to remind all you in the UK that I'm going to be over there the second weekend of April for a short film tour. Compliments to Cross Country Magazine and Ed Ewing and Hugh Miller and all their hard work. Thanks guys. We're also doing a couple shows that weekend, I think the 8th and 9th up in the Lakes District uh, at Jockey Sanderson's Flight Park so that'll be really cool. I'll be there to show the film but also talk about bivy flying and X-Alps and food and expedition packing and gear and uh, doing some flying with all of you so i hope you'll come and join us i think the saturday sold out but we've still got some some spots available on sunday you can find out about all that on the website cloudbasedmayhem.com and on the social medias you'll find that on my facebook page and cross country's facebook page and all that so Without further ado, let's get into this show. Uh, We turned the tables around a little bit on this one. Nick was really more interviewing me, finding out about SIV and ground handling and just safe practices. I firmly believe, and a lot of other uh, good pilots do as well, that you can learn a lot more from a couple hours of of ground handling than you can from a couple hours in the air. In fact, that's an absolute. So uh, this is a part of the sport that really saves us, uh, makes us a lot more safe, and hopefully this will clarify some of the uh, muddled waters about ground handling. So without further ado, please enjoy uh, this conversation with my good friend, Nick Cox. Nick Cox, it is uh, really cool to have you. We're going to spin the dial here a little bit, and uh, you're going you're gonna to talk to me. But the last time we chatted uh, in length, I was on, on your podcast, which is awesome, uh, Paleo Treats Podcast, which I invite our listeners to go check out. Nick talks to uh, adventurers that are doing really, really cool stuff, and it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with paleo, although uh, you guys make some awesome treats that I – super dig i actually ate the whole box that you sent me in about two days that stuff is amazing um but we're gonna we're gonna have a really cool chat about uh about ground handling and it and you came to me with this idea which i'm really excited to do uh but you know the last time we chatted which wasn't too long ago you hadn't even flown yet and now uh, i understand you you've uh you've got the sky crack pretty bad and so why don't you catch us up with what you're doing and and how you got into flying and and where you're at now 
Cool. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. Super excited. I think like the rest of the the paragliding community, I'm uh, yeah, just really grateful that you're putting so much information out there and sharing these conversations. And that's that's what podcasting, I think, is all about. So kick it off with a thanks. I got into paragliding actually from watching the movie with you and Will Gadd. Uh, I had a buddy up in Salt Lake City who was into it, but I'd always thought it was just kind of stupid and boring, to be honest with you. And then I saw that movie and, and all of a sudden the the potential and the opportunity was laid out in front of me. And I said like, that's, that's what I'm doing. Um, I had been doing a, a little bit of ultra running before then. And it's super nice to be in the mountains and, and getting that viewpoint. But I'd always had that dream of, instead of running along the trail, gliding along just above it. And paragliding seemed to be the the way to do that. So that's, that's how I got into it. Saw the movie, kind of looked around, met this really wonderful lady and instructor and uh, she made it super easy for me to get into flying. So started, started doing it. And, uh, it's funny. Most of your, most of your guests are, you know, thousand hour, 10,000 hour pilots. I'm uh, about a 98 minute pilot right now. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Now you say that probably a little bit in jest, but, but you, you know, you sent me this list of the stuff you're doing on the ground, which is just you know, wicked, exceptional, uh, you know, so I think you're, you're way ahead of the game. And I, you know, one of the, one of the really common themes that we, you know, you've heard me talk about with the guests uh, a lot is, is ground handling. And I, I really like that you've, uh, you've pointed it out as like, oh, wow, this must be, this must be really important. So it, it sounds like you're spending a lot of time on the ground and hats off for that. But, you know, how, how's that going? It's, so spending time on the ground to me is is kind of a byproduct of this situation that I've got where the instructor I've got isn't in the same state as me. And so we just, when we get together, we get to fly. And the rest of the time for right now, I'm, I'm mostly ground handling. In fact, I learned the, the usual kind of fear-based lesson the other day that it's it's not a good idea to fly early, um, which it's it seems like that's a part of almost every pilot's progression. And I'm, I'm glad it happened and that I got down safe, but uh, it was certainly terrifying. But yeah, I mean, let's kind of getting stuck into this idea of of ground handling is hearing you talk about it over and over here and every almost every pilot who comes on talk about it and I started to wonder you know what what does good ground handling mean and so we've got that one link to uh, I think Olivier Fritz and Annecy doing amazing stuff with kiting and I looked at that and realized like oh that's what good ground handling is it's it's more than getting the kite up over your head but I thought it'd be super cool to ask you a bunch of questions as a, as a really good pilot and see kind of your thoughts on ground handling. And hopefully we get to share that with the, the rest of the PG clan. Yeah. In fact, uh, those of you listening, I'll have these links to some of the videos we're going to reference here, including the one from Olivier uh, and Annecy uh, in the show notes that they are just amazing. And this video is, is next level. And I have to admit that my ground handling is definitely not at that level. So yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to answer your, your questions, but those of you listening, make sure to go check out the show notes and spend some time watching that. They're incredibly valuable and, uh, we'll give you something to, to shoot for. There's, there's a couple there and they're, they're really terrific, but yeah, no, well, well done, uh, pointing those out. So, Starting off, Kevin, I mean, we kind of have the the very beginner is building a wall and then getting it overhead, and that seems to be ground handling for a lot of people. And then you've got the at the other end of the spectrum, you've got this uh, this video that that will get up there. Like, what do you think of as the progression between 
that beginning level and that advanced level? Have you thought it out? Like, do you always always get dragged when you're ground handling? Are you getting dragged all the time on your launches? Or is that something that eventually totally goes away? Or is it much more weather dependent? Or kind of how do you think of that progression in your own mind? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I was really fortunate when I, I learned it. And, you know, so much of this depends on, on where you are. Um, you know, I don't want to call these guys out because they're my tribe. And, and, uh, and it's also one of the places that I spend a lot of time learning. But uh, we have a site up in Issaquah, up in Washington, uh, that, you know, they're, the pilots there are famous for having terrifically bad ground handling skills because it's a mountain site. And it's not really a place that if there's wind, you can't really fly. So you don't get much ground handling experience on the mountain. So unless you're going somewhere else to ground handle, uh, you know, I think ground handling for that kind of pilot in that location is exactly what you just said. You build a wall, you pull over your head. If you get lucky, you get off the hill. That to me is the most basic, basic, basic level. That's not ground handling. That's that's going flying if you're lucky. Uh, and, and I think the reason that ground handling is so incredibly critical is that, that everything that happens that could potentially happen that's bad in the air, you know, you can mimic on the ground. And so when it happens in the air, it com- becomes totally benign if you if you have those skills. And you know, 100 out of 100 accidents happen with contact in the ground. So, you know, you're, you're not going to get hurt in the air. Uh, you're going to get hurt. Well, you could potentially get a line around a helmet or a GoPro, God forbid, uh, and snap a neck or something. But, uh, or if it, an acro, you know, I have, I like, I dislocated my shoulder one time, but I mean, the, the, the serious stuff of course happens on the ground and 99 out of a hundred of those happens when you're launching and landing. So, uh, it's very rare even from like a reserve toss or something. So, you know, I think that if, if Whereas if you compare uh, pilots in out in at Tiger with uh, pilots that spend a lot of time, say, at the point in Utah, uh, where it's very windy almost all the time and you're really ridge soaring, it's a very different kind of flying. Those guys get really good at ground handling uh, really fast. You know, you can take a six-month pilot from from the point and – and put them against a 10-year pilot at Tiger, and their ground handling skills are 100 times better. So they're not at the level of Olivier Fritz in the video that we're going to put in the show notes, but, you know, they they can, you know, just, they're dragging all over the place on their feet. They're dancing underneath their wing. Uh, they're using their Cs, or if they're on a four-liner, their Ds, or the two-liner, they're using their Bs. Uh, if it's windy, they're never tapping their brakes. You know, they're they're just really solid skills that I would call foundational skills. You know, they're last night I had a film showing up in, up in San Francisco. And one of the guys that I was talking to after the show had, has j- just had an accident and he was asking me what I thought about SIV. And, you know, to me, if you're going to go paragliding and especially if you're going to go cross country SIV is one of these things that's not a one and done. You know, this is part of your yearly training that you have to do over and over and over again. So, you know, I think a ratio is 10 to 1 in terms of ground handling versus flying. I mean, I think it's just a it's a really requisite skill. I've maybe given you a little bit more than your question there, but yeah, 
the answer, the short answer is, is that once you get good at it, there should never be any dragging. There should never be anything. It should, you should always look elegant on launch. You know, Kriegel looks elegant when it's blowing 40 K, you know, he, he still makes it look easy. Right. So just on a, on a numbers scale, kind of kite to flight is, is 10 to one. Um, do you think that changes as you go up? Do you feel now as, as an expert pilot that you kind of need to and, and do ground handle at that level? Or do you feel it as you get up to beyond whatever the numbers are, 500 or 1,000 or 10,000 hours, that that ratio can change and, and still be pretty safe? No, I think that I think that very, very few pilots do. And, uh, and I'm one of them. And that's totally wrong. Uh, I think that that ratio should stay like that for your entire career. You know, the by far the best pilots and and you know when you when you watch acro pilots they they play all the time on the ground because they're waiting for the conditions to get right but it's also they turn it into a game you know and it's super fun and it's incredibly good exercise you know flying is not much exercise but when you're ground handling your you know your heart rate's up it's aerobic it can be anaerobic and if you bring some friends into the mix and you're tapping each other's wings and, you know, uh, the first time I really saw how fun it could be, I was a very new pilot. I was playing with Enlo O'Connor and his son, his son's 10 years old and he's just a ground handling Jedi. And, you know, so we would, I would just chase him around in the air and we would just top land over and over and over and over again. And then when we, we would top land, he would kind of dance over underneath his wing and he would just reach out just grab something on my wing just to, you know, to make it do some kind of nasty collapse just so I could, you know, try to recover it. You know, I think that that kind of, you have to look at it as training and you have to look at it as, you know, this, this kind of training is going to save my life. You know, I've been in places like beer in India where, you know, you have a, you have a small launch and sometimes hundreds of pilots on launch and, uh, you know, there's only a couple little places to get off. It's often no wind, uh, you know, so people are doing forwards, which tends to get, you know, again, this is just a forward should never be nerve wracking for a pilot. But but typically people don't do enough ground handling or they start, you know, really getting used to reverses. They like looking at their wing and they they lose that skill of, of forward launches. And, and I have to admit, I did, too. And so when I went into the last X-Alps, knowing I was going to be doing tons of sledders and and uh, forward launches and launches that were, were blowing over the back. So I had to run really fast. Um, you know, I made that part of my training regimen and for sure it made me a safer, better pilot, you know? And so I think back to beer, um, you can go there pretty much every day during the season and see two or three accidents from people blowing launches. And it's just, in my mind, it's completely unnecessary. They shouldn't be up there until they're down in the paddock down low and they've done, you know, 50 to one hours or something, you know, before, you know, it just shouldn't be, these are just, to me, they're senseless and totally preventable accidents. So yeah, to answer your question, if, you know, my, my urge would be, and this is to myself as well, would be that you never, you never minimize that practice, that that just becomes part of your, you know, flying ritual. So yeah, I would encourage everybody to spend way more time on the ground a very funny thing something i've talked about on the podcast in the past is uh my first super final down in columbia in 2012 i think i've talked about this on the last show actually with christina but 
uh, you know, it's the, the air tends to be pretty still on launch or even slightly over the back. You know, you've got all these total air jet eyes, you know, with, uh, with comp wings and, you know, it's, it's comical in a way. And it's also kind of like, it's, it's kind of, it's ridiculous to see how many pilots that are, you know, at a, at a world cup, you know, these are the best of the best in terms of cross country flying are really bad on the ground. And, I think that that's it. Just there's a direct connection. There's a direct line between that and accidents, even at that level. You know, I think that you know if you're if you're bad on the ground, I, you know, you might still you're, you're probably you could be a fairly good cross country pilot, but you could be a lot better. Yeah, that's the question that comes up for me is is you have guys who are phenomenally good in the air who are pretty crappy on the ground. And, and I wonder just kind of looking at the reality of it is that it sounds like it's a good idea to ground handle, but how much better do you get if you ground handle a bunch, if you're already really good in the air? I mean, I think this is the hard question because I don't know if there's a, a huge, well, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's, you know, it's a, it's a great question. And I think it's a really obvious, you know, I think that's where people get caught, you know, well, wait a minute, this guy's, you know, just amazing, but you know, you can barely get off the deck sometimes when it's cross or it's over the back or whatever. And the the reason that that's you know that that's not so obvious is because when you're flying, you have you know you're you've got a pressurized wing number one, and the pendulum effect takes a lot of things out of the wing. You know, a lot of the bad stuff that could happen doesn't happen because you're hanging down underneath it, and you know you're then you're acquiring all these skills that come from hours and hours in the air, you know, how to spot thermals, where to go, how to use rotor, how to fly lee side, how to fly windward side, you know, uh, time of the day, angle of the sun, all the things that we use. You're flying the lower third of the sky, the middle third, the top third, all these things that we learn. But when it comes to something quick and catastrophic uh, or potentially catastrophic, if you have those hours and hours and hours on the ground, those potentially catastrophic things are totally benign. They just very, very rarely ever happen to somebody that's great on the ground because it's totally instinctual. You know, those little things that you feel and those tiny, tiny, tiny sensitivities that you build up from all that time on the ground, uh, when you're looking at your wing and you're spinning it around and you understand the flow and the dynamics of the air and how that affects your wing, it just, it, it, go, it, it ties directly into safety in the air. So the other side of it is, is I think obvious, but, you know, when accidents happen on the ground and, and I'm talking about taking off or landing, then that's just purely ground handling, you know? So these are kind of two different things, but you know, if you're, if you're say, if you say you want to get into bull piv, uh, and you want to, you know, well, you want to kind of sky camp and do some of the stuff that, that I do a lot of, you know, there's, there's a couple skills there that are really requisite. You know, one is top landing, which is probably, one, if not the most dangerous thing that I think that that we do in our sport, because you're landing typically at a time of the day when it's still pretty powered up. And let's just face it, top landing's tricky. And uh, and then the other thing is, you know, you're you're not flying from 
known sites where you've got reliable weather reports and other people standing around and you know you don't have all this medio and you don't have this you know local knowledge and it's not your site you know you're flying and landing and flying and landing in places that um, maybe no one has ever flown or landed in and so then you're using just all the skill that you've built up and again you know uh, it's a very fine line between snapping an ankle and just dancing around and being safe you know and and that's just purely ground handling that's not luck you know it's not it's not just uh i i just don't think that there should be you know if you're a pilot and you're having you know more than a couple a year of those like whoa that was close then you're not ground handling enough it's just it's you know let's face it this is a dangerous sport and uh you can just radically min minimize those risks if you if you make this part of your skill set Okay, so coming from an an athlete background, I feel like I don't know if I've ever been a professional athlete, uh, but certainly participated. Is one of the things that you do almost every time is warm up. Is there a warm up that you do ground handling when you get up? You, you know, if you're going to go fly for a day or it's a fun flight or or not a fun flight or whatever it is, do you anything other than racing kind of get up like all right, I'm going to build a wall. I'm going to knock out my reverse. I'm going to bring it back down. I'm going to do the Cobra launch. I'm going to bring it up, spin it left 180, spin it right 180. Like, do you have a, a system that you go through or have you heard of anyone having a system like that where they just have their 10 minute kind of kiting warm up before they go? And then the second part of that question is if you have that and you're doing that every time, is it really necessary once you get good to have that same 10 to one kite to flight ratio? You know, that another great question. Um, I don't know of anybody that does that except in places like the point, uh, you know, where you're really more or like Tory or you're really more ridge soaring. Uh, typically when you're, when you're mountain flying, your window can be, especially in the Rockies, uh, your window can be really, really narrow. And uh, when you're flying, you know, midday, like say, you know, Sun Valley where I fly, you're, you don't, you would never want to, kite or spend any time on the ground doing any kind of exercises like that because uh you know we're often flying when there's pretty strong dust devils coming through and you know you want to get up and away and so the answer to your question is is totally dependent on where you are you know if you're in Annecy on a you know a half a mile piece of carpet and there's nobody else around like they would never you know in that video he's obviously gotten the okay and there's nobody around to be able to do that but you know typically there's a hundred people standing there waiting to get off the hill and there's t there's tons of tandems going and you would never be allowed to do that you know you're you're expected to have all your stuff ready your, your lines are clean you're ready to go you've got everything buckled up you're you know you've done your four main checks and and you're you're off the hill so um, it. Yeah, it completely depends on where you are. I see the two as very, very different disciplines. You know, one is you're going up the hill to go on a cross country flight, and uh, you're you're very much you need to be thinking about on launch. You need to be thinking about, you know, uh, have I got my food accessible? Are my instruments ready to go? Nate Scales calls it, you know, no schoolboy errors. You know, if you're in a competition or you're going for a big day. Uh, you know, if you show up and you've forgotten your helmet, for example, or you've forgotten your shoes, or you don't have enough, uh, you don't have enough food, or you don't have enough water, uh, you're you're already putting huge odds 
against yourself. You know, like those sure. are the kind of things where you want to go. Yeah, maybe today's not my day. You know, so by the time you're up at launch, you're you're solid, and you can really see the difference in the great pilots and the not so great pilots up on launch because they're just incredibly confident and they're wicked organized, and they just unpack and everything gets laid out and they go and they look great doing it. And so to get to that point, though. You know, they have spent, uh, well, hopefully the best ones have spent a lot of time on the ground. So I, I view the two as different. And I think where where people mess up is they hear about ground handling and they do a lot of it in the beginning. And then, you know, they start flying and they love the flying and they leave the ground handling behind. But you have to take the bad days uh, and go, That's those are the days to go ground handle. However, the difference is if you're, you know, you it's it can be pretty dangerous to ground handle where there's compression or where there's thermals. You know, sure. I, I would just say it's it's you know you you want to ground handle in a you know in a field uh, in a soccer field. You know, it's it's okay to do it in some place where there's rotor. In fact, it's great because that mimics what you're going to be dealing with in the real world. But you know, you don't want to get plucked. Because uh, then you could potentially, of course, you know, get hurt. So you, you want to do it in in places that are, uh, you know, friendly to ground handling. You know, stormy and and gusty is fine. You know, there's there's you know these these great stories about when Kriegel trains for the X Alps. He'll go up in some kind of valley where there's tons of snow and and see how much wind he can handle and there's rumors that he you know ground handles in like 60k on a regular wing <laughs> there's always that guy in every sport right oh, awesome. which is considerably over the trip speed of a wing you know but but he's also but he's doing it he's picking a place that he can get plucked he's picking a place that's got a lot of powder snow and he can he could mess up I can't imagine Kriegel ever messing up at anything but uh you know he's picking a place that you know if he gets plucked or something it's safe so first you know make sure it's a safe place to do it the other thing too is, you know, for pilots in the U.S. and Canada, you know, if you're flying in the Rockies or this kind of thing, you know, a lot of the places that we have to go flying are really hard on your wing. You know, there's tons of little rocks, or there's sagebrush, or there's small trees. I mean, it's these are not the grass-covered hills like they have in the Alps. So, you know, in the interest of protecting uh, what is a, quite an expensive piece of equipment, you know, you also don't really want to be ground handling a cactus. You know, you want to ground handle in places that are really kind to your wing, like even sand. Um, sand just destroys wings. So it's totally OK, completely OK to ground handle with you know, uh, a wing that's, you know, you're not planning on flying like a, a smaller wing or even a speed wing. I mean, any kind of ground handling is good ground handling. It doesn't necessarily need to be the wing you fly with. You, you, of course, need to ground handle with the wing you fly with too, but, you know, beat something else up. Don't, don't take your brand new, you know, uh, Porsche out and, uh, and, and rally it through the forest. Gavin, are there kind of ground handling skills that you think of? Cause this is one of the things that, that I, kept missing when I was listening is people would say like, oh, that guy's a good ground handler, but what does that mean? You know, if, if I say you're a good runner, it's like, oh, you can run a sub five minute mile. Like, oh, it's a, a ripping runner. But with the ground handling, it doesn't seem very often that I get to hear about specific s skills. So is that something you can talk about? Like everyone should be able to spin their wing 360 under control or everyone should be able to, whatever it is, fly it backward, fly it forward. Are there things that you think about in that sense? Yeah, absolutely. So, 
Um, one is you want to be able to handle your handle your wing in a lot of wind and 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 definitely a lot of you know kind of unstable wind. So what that means is being able to kite with uh, you know being able to bring it up when when one side's completely collapsed and just and just having the other A and being really flexible with your hands. And what I mean by that is uh, you know being able to steer the wing on the ground. Just using your C's, just using your B's, you know, no brakes at all, using no hands, just dancing underneath it with your feet, you know, doing all your steering with weight shift. You should be able to ground handle on your back. Um, So, you know, remove your feet out of the equation totally. Uh, You should be able to ground handle with a big portion of the wing collapsed, both sides. You should be able to ground handle with pulling one tip almost all the way down to the ground, and especially in higher wind. And this is super fun, you know, just letting the wing completely tow you, but not letting it get out of control. You want to be able to helico it with ease. You want to be able to fly it backwards, uh, just using the brakes or the D's or C's, depending on what kind of wing you've got. I mean, basically, you want to you want to imagine that that if somebody's watching you, it looks like you're just wicked in control. You want to be like the video and 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 that we're, we've gotten the show notes with Olivier. You want to just be just totally comfortable and have it, you know, have it down. And uh, so I think all those and, and much more. I, I think people also worry about, you know, like, oh, I don't want to be embarrassed. You know, I think that that comes up a lot. And so, uh, you know, and, that, and I totally get that. But, you know, so go practice it when there's nobody else around. But that should never be holding you back. You know, there's, there's so many people that are sitting around on launch that are, you know, that are nervous about how they look. Well, you're already behind eight ball. if That's what you're thinking. You know, you want to have that in your head that even if you're low hours, you want to have in your head that the worst thing is that you're, is to be really nervous on launch and to have your head flooded with all this, like, Ooh, I don't know. I don't know. You know, your, your mental capacity then is, is already so sapped that when you get out into the air, your chance of bombing out are, are much, much higher than the guy or the gal that just comes to launch and just has it, you know, and they, and they know they've got it. And they're not, they're not thinking about that. They're, they're, they're a few hours down the road already. They're, they've got, they've got all their waypoints and their GPS. They're thinking about, you know, how big can they go? They're assessing the sky you know, they're, they're not thinking about getting off the hill. I promise you. It's totally awesome. I, I, I get it. And I think, uh, there's, everyone goes through this progression where you have to have a lot of that, uh, muscle memory in, in order to, to free up your actual brain to do the thinking that matters. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, I think that, that there's, there's no, uh, you know, the only recipe there is, is training, you know, there's no real shortcut there. I think just it's, for some reason, uh, I think it's widely viewed as is like this kind of necessary evil, and uh, that's wrong. It, it really isn't. Number one, it's really fun, and it's great exercise. And I, you know, it's often just it's it's also just no stress fun. You know, that if right. you're doing it at a good place, you're not going to get hurt. And let's face it, flying can often be really stressful. So just it's just the easiest way and the best way uh, there's, there's that in SIV really, but it's the best way I would say it's even much better than SIV uh, to just get good fast. You know, you, you will become 
a radically better pilot if you if you spend a lot of time on the ground. This is not, not a skill that this is not riding your bike. Um, this is not a skill that you just rip for the first two years of your career and you come back to five years and you haven't been doing much and you're going to be as good as you were. You're going to be terrible. Right. It, it just doesn't, it does. It's a skill that for some reason, I'm sure there are exceptions to this with certain people, but this is not a skill that hangs in your repertoire. Yeah. And so it needs to be hammered. Okay. Hammered over and over. I'm going to have one more ground handling question and then think we can we probably hammered this enough we can move on to some more beginner <laughs> flying stuff but uh, the last ground handling stuff is do you think there's any any value in having a separate wing just for ground handling and you, you answered a little bit before but i've seen like wings that are specific to ground handling do you feel like a new pilot should consider that uh maybe maybe not a critical part of their gear but something really important or essential or yeah i don't you know it's nice to have. I don't think it's essential as long as you can ground handle in a place that's not going to trash your wing. Um, I would say for sure you need one if you, you know, if you don't have nice grassy soccer fields or something. Sure. Um, you know, if you're if you're ground handling in the desert and the sand, uh, you know, then yeah, it's it's pretty essential to, to get another wing just because you know your porosity is going to go through the roof really fast if you're you know if you're ground handling Monterey on the beach, uh, you know, or Dune to Pila or something. That's you know that's a different that's a different wing for sure. Uh, so, you know, sand is just the worst enemy. Uh, if you're near the ocean, salt is terrible. Uh, you know, waters off the salt water, especially is really bad. Uh, so yeah, if you, you, it's, it's great to have it, another wing if you can, you, know, you can often just pick up uh, somebody else's old ragged out wing, just with the full knowledge that, that this is, you know, going to behave quite a bit differently than the wing that you fly. So, you, you know, you've got to get practice on the wing that you fly too, but you know, that typically that's, you know, that's not the one you want to just trash. You know, if you spend a, a week out at a, uh, if you spend a week out at the point in Utah with your brand new wing, it is not going to look very new after that <laughs> week. Um, so, you know, it's, it's still, you know, most, most of the guys out there are, you know, you know, you're, you're just ridge soaring. So that's, you know, that's totally fine to ground handle that wing to death and then go flying, you know, but it's, it's typically not the one that there's not a lot of people out there on their Enzo twos. Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. So shifting into some beginner flying questions is, uh, I hear you talk a lot about the, the breakdowns for hours, but it seems like there's a big jump. You're either kind of a, a 50 hour pilot or you're a 500 hour pilot. And, you know, under 50 is your beginner and then 50 to 500 is intermediate and beyond that, or at some point beyond that, you, you become expert or, or at least better. Is there any more of a breakdown that you think of in your own mind? If someone walks up and says they've got 2000 or 4,000, is there kind of classes that you, you put them in or, or yeah. How do you think about that? Yeah. I, you know, I, okay. So num number one, uh, if someone comes up and tells me they're a P3 or a P4, I could care less, you know, number one, our rating system, I don't think is relevant really at all. I mean, it's, it's kind of a guideline, but you know, when I got the North American foot launch record, I was a P3, <laughs> you know, it just, I, I didn't, I had way, I don't know how many, I was uh, 2000 hours or something. I mean, I just didn't, I, I didn't take that seriously. And I, and I still don't, I mean, I, I like, I'm not, 
I'm not putting it down, but you know, you can get a P4 and have a hundred hours, I think, you know, it just doesn't. So sure. that's not relevant. Okay. And then, and, and the other thing is too, that, you know, hours are a really slippery sand that, you know, that, uh, someone can be a pilot in Pacifica or Tory and have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours ridge soaring and they don't know the first thing about going cross country you know they've they've never flown in rotor they've never thrown flown in very strong thermals so uh i i think i think we have to think about it more well uh, i'll keep going with this too i think that um you know you can have somebody who's you know really getting after it pretty aggressive and you know well into the intermediate stage at say 75 100 hours 50 is super beginner 100 is still beginner we're not really touching intermediate at at, at any hour level until you're well over 100 for for absolutely for sure but you know another another variable is that 100 hours that you've gotten in 5 years or is that 100 hours you've gotten in 3 months you know how current are you so every individual is is completely different what I like maybe better is uh, the stages that if you know there there are probably many more of these, but you kind of have beginner and then intermediate, and we often talk about intermediate syndrome, uh, and that's just most simply put is overconfidence, and then then you have the halo expert end of things uh, where. You've, you've made it through the intermediate syndrome and that's great. Uh, and then, then you're, you know, now you're talking, you, you've gotten three to 400 hours a year for four or five years at least. Um, and you're also pretty aggressive. Uh, you've done the training, you've done the ground handling, you've done the SIV. In other words, you're getting pretty good. And, uh, and then, then you've got this, like, I'm so good. I can't get hurt. And that that is also very dangerous. So uh, uh, the reason we bring these up on the show over and over again, you know, when you're a beginner, you don't really know what to be scared of. (laughs) And then when you're an intermediate, you think you're, you know, you think you're better than you are. And so that that overconfidence can really lead to disaster. And these are these are the these are the kind of folks who, uh, you know, may not understand what's going on in the day. They may, you know, oh. You know, I've gotten pretty good at ground handling. Uh, that guy's flying, and but they don't know that that guy is, you know, say an ex-Alps pilot or something. And then they fly, and then they get hurt. You know, because they're in conditions that are way over their head. You know, one thing that happens a lot to folks is they're in the air and they don't recognize soon enough that the air or the weather has changed, and they don't have the get-down skills. You know, so they've got to suffer through some kind of terrible. Uh, terrible uh, valley wind or, you know, something has gone bad and, you know, there's nothing more terrifying than being in the air than you want when you want to be on the ground. So, yeah, I don't really think about so much about hours because I think it can be pretty misleading. I think it just really depends on, you know, what kind of frame of mind are you in today? Because that's another thing that bites people is they, you know, uh, they might be, they may have just had a small accident or seen somebody else and they're flying scared. And, uh, you know, that can really, you know, it's like putting your, your one arm behind your, your, your back, but, but it's your brain, you know, you're, you're, you're flying with less capacity. And so that can be dangerous. You know, there's days where you have it and there's days that when you don't, uh, one of the recent guests I had on Tom Payne, uh, he talked about 
I think the one one of the most valuable lessons he ever learned was when not to fly. I love that. Yeah, I, and it's it's funny. I mean, we'll, we're going to hit it a little bit later with one of the questions. Is but a lot of these things, as as terrible as it is, you just for me, and I think probably for a lot of paragliding pilots, because my guess is that most paragliding pilots are really driven by um, by feeling by that kinesthetic sense. Is is you have to feel it in order to learn it. You can read it in a book a hundred times, and God knows I love reading, but Man, the other day I, I launched and I looked back at that whole progression and there was four separate points where it was like, Nick, you knew not to launch. You know, if you had written down what you were doing, it would have been like, nope, that's a no-go. Nope, that's a no-go. But, you know, you don't get there until you you tune into that feeling portion. So that's that's kind of the, the hours piece and it's just, it's super dependent and I think that's, yeah, that makes sense to me. If you were to think, looking back on not just your career, but looking at uh, or thinking about the people you've talked to now, where you've got more of an in-depth conversation than, than maybe a less curious person would, is there a progression that you would you would want to lay out for a pilot past flight school, right? So you go to flight school, you get your P2 or, you know, maybe you get your P3 if, you, if you're at it for a while. Like what, what would you say to make the the perfect pilot, or, or at least the really safe pilot, what would happen over the first, say, three years if they're flying, I don't know, 10 hours a month or whatever it is? Um, what would you what would you kind of recommend or uh, prescribe? Cool. A whole bunch of things. Um, so first, I think, and this is a common one that comes up, because I, I asked this question with a few of our guests, and, and a really common answer, which I totally agree with, is if you can live in the right place. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, it's, it's, you have to get time. And so the more time you can get, if you live in a place where you can't fly that much, then ground handle, that's the easy one. But, you know, if you can be in a place that's, uh, that has a community of pilots, uh, and it, that you can fly on a pretty regular basis, there's, there's just nothing better than time. Surround yourself with the pilot's the pilot or pilots that you want to become. So I think this one's super important. You know, if you, if you, if you want to fly a lot, hang out with people that want to fly a lot because, and, and hang out with pilots that are better than you are, if you can, because they're going to teach you. And, and there's, there's nothing competitive about paragliding really. I mean, there is a little bit in competitions or in, but even in competitions, you know, everybody has been through the ringer at some point. Um, we all see way too many accidents. And so and we don't want to ever see any more. And so, you know, you can ask anybody, you know, you just, you want to be, I guess I want to encourage people to be the, the most, the, the softest, most malleable sponges they possibly can, you know, so really soak it up. And Remember that there's, if you can't fly, there's so many other things you can do. Uh, you know, get used to checking your gear all the time. You know, are your pins in your, in your reserve? Uh, are there any fray in your lines? Is there, you know, check, check everything and check it and check it, you know, get really good about, you know, making sure your, your four point check, your chin strap and your harness straps and your shoes are tied, you know, these kind of just your, the, the basics, you know, if you create really good habits there, that's going to go 
a really long ways. And then there's amazing resources. Uh, there's this podcast, but, uh, you know, there's, there's great books, you know, Thermal Flying by Burkhard Martins. You need to read that and then read it 10 more times. You know, the, there's just, there's fantastic, uh, Dennis Pagan stuff. Um, Mad Syndergaard, you know, there's, there's, uh, Kelly Farina, who I had on the show a while back. Yep. Um, his book is terrific, you know, so, you know, in the winter or when you can't fly, you know, just learn, you know, learn as much as you possibly can. The thing that typically gets people is weather. And so that's, you need to understand Medio. If any of you are out there, your listeners, and you're thinking about getting into flying, if you're a whitewater kayaker, if you're kite surfer if you're a sailor you're gonna you you have a huge edge up you know you're gonna be there's a really weird uh, tie between kayaking whitewater kayaking and and paragliding guys and girls that whitewater kayak that get into paragliding get good really fast and that's because you know water dynamics are the same as air dynamics and so they they just intrinsically understand how air moves even though air is invisible and so they understand that and then kayaking is kind of freaky and so i think it it fits that kind of fear profile that or risk profile that helps you know that helps you to become good pretty fast but back to your back to your progression there's nothing that can replace time i wouldn't jump into an siv immediately you know you want to have you know a 50 hours under your belt, maybe 75 hours under your belt, but definitely you want to do SIV, you know, before you really start popping into any kind of real uh, cross country, you know, and your first SIV is, is, is just that it's your first SIV. You are not that good after you come out of an SIV, you know, Andre Prashaska, one of our guests was an acro guy and, and, you know, he was told that he needed to do 300 full stalls before he would even be taken seriously. And, I totally agree with that. You know, you, you, you know, SIV is something that you make part of your yearly routine. You know, people will go, well, yeah, but it's kind of expensive. Yeah, but this is your life. Um, so, you know, spend, spend the time. It's like a woofer, you know, you forget, you forget wilderness first response. And that's why you got to go through the, uh, the research all the time. You know, it's, it's the same with SIV. It's, and it's the same with ground handling. You just need to keep, keep re- revisiting it. You need to keep working on the foundation to keep working on the basics. Um, because if you're going to fly cross country, you will, I promise you, you will get in a bad situation, build up your toolkit because the more you train, the more tools you're going to have in the bag. And the more of that stuff is just going to be benign and you can land and you can smile and go, yep, I had that move. Yeah. And it reminds me of the, the Jeff Shapiro podcast that you had where he talked right. about doing whatever that corkscrew maneuver was like thank god i did that a million times and it was just right. a natural thing when you when you have it it's it's nice to pull it out of that tool bag and it's, it's all shiny and sharp and ready to go yeah i mean i think that that's that's um you know when you you have to train yourself to be able to think in stressful conditions and for some people that comes pretty naturally you know they don't they don't wig out they stay calm and they do it but for most people you know the tendency is to panic if you panic in a paraglider that's not going to go very well and so the only way around that is to train and that's why you know i think the fallacy of siv you know oh i've done a couple of them that's probably enough it's just not you know every time you do it you're going to learn something every time you do it you're going to get more confident the first time is the only thing that the first one does 
is, you know, gives you a little bit more trust in your wing because you're like, wow, I could do some really bad things to this thing and it's totally fine. That's great because that boosts your confidence. But really all it does is shakes the cobwebs out a little bit and, and shakes the fear out a little bit. And it gives you, you know, some more confidence, which is great. You need confidence to fly well. But, you know, it's not really until you get to the third, fourth, fifth one that you're actually really taking on, you know, you're taking information on board. When you get out of an SIV and you go do a bunch of full stalls on your own without an instructor, that's when you know you're making progress. Got it. But that's not a not a per, uh, prescription to do that after your first one. <laughs> no, and no, okay. no, 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 definitely not. <laughs> Gavin, would you say so? It sounds like the the kind of the foundational skills of paragliding or first kiting, and then you do your you know launches and lands. And then at some point, pretty early on in your career, you do your first SIV. Would you consider that um, a foray into acro would be a foundational skill for an aspiring XC pilot? Absolutely. Just, yeah, I almost, I almost could just say that and, and stop. I mean, I, I'll, I'll say more because it's important, but it's, um, again, you're, you're to have a long career in, in flying, you know, number one, that, that, that old saying, you know, there are old pilots and there are bold pilots, but there are no old, bold pilots. And this is something I fight personally big time. So I, you know, people that know me know that I, I, I fly tend, I tend to fly on the very risky end of things. And, uh, and that's what allowed me to get good really fast, but it is really dangerous. And that's just my, my personality. So I'm not inviting people to follow that in any way, but, uh, I think luckily I got through that intermediate syndrome stage and now I'm trying to be much more mindful of just being smart. And, and that to me means training. And that to me means acro is totally a piece of that pie. You know, you, you just have to, you should do acro training and with this caveat you know you want to do it in a controlled environment especially in the beginning you know you're not learning over the dirt you've got an instructor uh they're good it's a good instructor and you know you don't take it too fast you know you i think the the one maneuver that gets a lot of people in trouble is wing overs you know it's one of the most demanding and hardest moves there is. And it's usually the one that people start trying in the beginning. And so, you know, have some respect for that move. Uh, don't do it low, you know, uh, uh, take your time because there's a lot of things going, you know, in a good wing over where you're, you know, you're basically looping and you're totally completely over the wing, uh, completely upside down in a proper wing over. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot of weight shift. There's a lot of timing. There's a lot of, uh, you know, break at certain times. And, you know, if you mess it up, it can get pretty ugly. So, so do it smart. That's, that is something you want to take slow, well, acro training, but, you know, absolutely. It's, it's, it's in that toolkit, you know, Pal Tackett's is one of the X Alps pilots uh, this time. He, he was in it, I think, 2009 or so. But he, you know, his thing is acro. He's a professional acro pilot, Red Bull pilot. And, uh, you know, for him to go do the X Alps is, is kind of a no brainer. You know, you can just imagine a guy with those kind of skills. He also flies now very good cross country, but imagine a guy with those kind of skills in strong winds and strong rotor. I mean, I, there's not too many things that are going to put him in a bad place because right. of his acro training. Right. So foundational for sure. Let's, let's go a little bit along that feeling line where you're talking about wing overs demanding 
demanding a, a good feel for the wing and skip back a little bit earlier in the pilot's progression to use of instruments. Um, I mean, definitely in the States, it's almost like a culture that we love gear and we geek out on technical crap. And and the more you can, you know, festoon your body with, with electronics, the better. What are your thoughts on, as a, as a beginning pilot, you know, are there pieces of gear that you should not use until you, uh, say, earn them through some amount of hours? Yeah, I mean, you know, one one thing about instruments that's that can be really valuable is wind speed. Uh, and so when you start flying cross country, you know, if you if you don't have anything that's given you wind speed and direction, then that's something that can be a little bit dangerous. So I'll put that out there as the one caveat. You should fly without a vario on a regular basis, and in the beginning there's way too many other things going on and you don't need a vario. In fact, you shouldn't have a vario. And so, you know, have nothing except your, you know, a tracking device and if you're in some kind of remote place, but way better to develop the feel and way better to not cloud your mind with more unnecessary information. You know, there's nothing more magical than catching a, catching a thermal and tracking it and coring it and know that you're going up just by looking around, you know, and watching that horizon disappear. In terms of training, um, I think it's really valuable to every year put that thing away, stick it back in your bag, and just fly by feel. I think that we get way too locked into instruments and we lose that, you know, birds don't have instruments and they do just fine. And so I think it's, it's, uh, it's again, I think a lot of people look at flying for fun. And I personally, you know, and, and, and it absolutely should always be fun. And if it's not, don't do it because it's too dangerous. So, you know, it should be fun. That's the number one rule. But take every flight as an opportunity to train. Take every flight as an opportunity to get better. And if you do it that way, then you're just you're, you're going to get better much, much faster. And you're going to you're going to stack the odds. Cool. Dig it. I mean, that sounds Sounds pretty awesome and super good. And advice. beeping, all that beeping kind of sucks. You know, it's been really funny tra traveling with North and Noah. We don't actually explain what the Vario is mm -hmm. in the movie like we did in the Rockies Traverse. Yep. And so the pilots all know what's going on, but the audience, one of the questions, I, I'm now leading the talks off with, hey, the beeping is Vario and this is what it does. But it's, you know, it, you, when you're watching it, you know, when I'm sitting in the audience and watching it from and imagining that I'm not a pilot, you know, it's pretty distracting. You're, you're in this beautiful place and you got all this beeping going on. What the hell's all that beeping about? So it's pretty nice to just put that away, you know, yeah. and, uh, and just fly by feel. You got to dub that shit out, man. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> totally. uh, over and over on the podcast, you know, there's always the point where you talk about mistakes or pilot error. Is there, and this is kind of tied in two questions is you've been flying, um, long enough and in, in big enough conditions to, to have had, you, you should have had a couple, well, not should, um, but it wouldn't be surprising if you'd had a couple big accidents by now, but you haven't. Is there something that you attribute to that? Is there a, a, a mantra beyond your four point check? Is there something that you say to yourself like, or, or something that you would recommend to pilots that you feel like, Hey, this series of, of events has kept me safe or this series of actions I take before I fly. keeps me safe. Gosh, you know, I, I want to say this with some humility. 
but I also want to say it with the knowledge that a lot of my mentors and peers uh, know me very well and they've flown with me and and <laughs> I'm not sure I want to say it so they don't disagree as well. No doubt that there's uh, part of it's maybe 50, the 52 lives that I have, <laughs> sure. uh, you know, there's, there's no doubt there's been some luck in there. You know, I did have a little crash on the Rockies reverse, uh, and that was a real eye opener for me. I mean, I didn't get really hurt, you know, but I, uh, put myself in a terribly dangerous position and, and, and really did. I think, I mean, I think I made some decent decisions to only kind of get hurt instead of really get hurt, but I'd like to think that, you know, a lot of it is training, you know, I've taken that side of things pretty seriously. The other side is, is something that has been a common theme in my life in other sports, uh, in the kayaking and the climbing and skiing, um, not really so much the sailing, but I, I guess to an extent, but I, I think all those have really given me a, a very good understanding of how the air works. And, but it, they've also, taught me a lot about the value of staying calm and I have this weird it's actually a physiological thing it's not something that I control at all uh, but it was it was uh they did some studies on on me back when I was kayaking when I get in well some heart rate monitoring when I get in really dicey positions uh really stressful positions my heart rate actually drops uh and it, I think you and I actually talked about this a little bit on, on your show. Um, you actually, I think I had a name for it, but I can't remember what it's called, but it's, it's, uh, it, I get really calm and really focused. And when, when things get twisted and bad, and I, I think that that has, I know I can think of several times, uh, at least that in my paragliding career, that that's saved my life. Um, just being able to process and think about options really fast and uh and I guess just have the have the confidence that, that I could, you know, get out of it. So, you know, Will Gad was was constantly calling me the the eternal optimist. I, I think that, that uh that bothered him in a lot of ways because you know, he's always thinking about what could go wrong and I'm always thinking about how it's gonna go right. So so far that's played okay for me but you know i, I i'm st i'm honestly i'm still really trying to balance that so i'm not sure i answered your question but it for me it's this that that confidence that i got this i got this uh, which i think has really come in handy uh, in quite a few places with with flying i i think that that has been more of the reason than the training or the checks or being really super organized because honestly that those the especially the organized side of things that's not my strong point sure sure and i mean there's a, a billion dollar in industry teaching or trying to teach confidence to people and obviously it's not working because the industry is still around so it's it's i don't think it's a good question to say like well how, how did you get so confident gavin because it it doesn't seem to matter that you know, what works for one person doesn't work for another. And it's, it's based on life experience, but that, that combination of confidence and training is probably as, as close as anyone will get to having a formula for it. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely, I'm definitely thinking a lot more now. And I don't think this is age. I think it's just, 
you know, I'm, I'm just realizing, yeah, well, the last couple of years, well, basically I was, I was hearing, you know, from the guys who I really look up to, you know, Nick Reese and Nate and, and Matt, and these guys that I fly with at home, you know, like, Hey man, take it easy. I was hearing that a little bit too much, you know, and I, I started really, you know, rather than, you know, going, Oh man, I got it. No, don't worry about it. I was, I, I was, I took those comments really, really seriously. Like, what are they, what are they seeing in my flying that they don't like? What are they seeing in my flying that makes them nervous? And how can I, how can I change that? Jeff and I talked a little bit about that too. Jeff Shapiro, he's, yep. he was going through kind of similar stuff. Yeah. Maybe not flying the X elves, but then you wouldn't be you. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah, the deal. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I got to do that. <laughs> um, There's only some things I can do. Yeah. 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 You're put here on the planet to use what you got. That's uh right. That's how it goes. So uh, one of the things I'm hearing a ton on the podcast is you ask the question, hey, when should people move up on a wing? And basically, if I was going to distill it down to one word, it's, you know, after you get to a B, never. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And it doesn't matter if it's a really advanced pilot or, I mean, I guess you don't have, you've got me and Cedar as as your two super beginners. Um, Can you, can you talk about that a little bit or, and, and why do so many people completely ignore that advice? they get wrapped up in this whole thing where they take off on glide with guys that are on comp wings and they're on a B and they get out glided and it makes them angry, you know, or they, you know, they, they end up on the deck and those guys get out. And so, you know, there's this huge motivation to move up on wings, to fly distance, you know, the, the, the higher end wings glide better. And so, you know, your, your, your potential for going far is just, is, is, uh, pretty radically increased by going, you know, B, C, D, comp. And so that's, that's what motivates people. But to, to answer your first question, for sure, you shouldn't stop at B if you're, you know, if you have the skills and you have the, the you know, the, uh, the mental strength and fortitude and the right kind of, you know, if you're, if you're flying well and you've got the hours, then absolutely you should move up because they're just magnificent pieces of equipment. You know, the, the comp gliders and two liners and stuff are just really dreamy to fly. And so I'm not saying, Oh, I want to encourage you all to go out on a, on a hotter, hotter wing. You just have to really understand the consequences and the, the not, well, the potential consequences, you know, you have to, you have to have the training. And so, I look at it the same as I used to with kayaking. Uh, the, the, I think it's a really good analogy. If you do any, you know, river trips, you know, we used to always talk about you don't you don't paddle class four until you're nailing every single eddy at class three. You know, you're just dominating a class three river. That's when you're ready for class four, you know, or four minus or whatever, you know. Sure. And uh, same with kind of climbing, I guess. You know, when you're when you're just killing it and it, you know, you're killing the 11 C's and 11 D's, then you're ready for 12s, you know? So the, the analogy I think is, is very correct when, with paragliding, you know, when you're, when you really feel like your wing is holding you back, then that's maybe a time to start considering that hours wise, you know, there are Josh Cohn uh, is just dominates our competition scene in the U S and, you know, I think he's, said he flies like 75 hours a year, but he's flown so long and flies so much that, you know, this doesn't really apply to him at all. You know, he could fly whenever he wants and just kill it. Um, and he's got the skills and he does a lot of uh, SIV training and macro training and you know, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, really to me, if you're not flying, you know, 
at least 150 hours a year, that's not, you know, you shouldn't be moving up that, you know, you need to be getting at least that many hours in real hours, not ridge soaring hours to move, you know, to move up to, to a, a hotter wing. But just to give you an example, a friend of mine from home, uh, Willie Cannell, you know, this year, I think we all took off from Baldy. We were all flying, you know, at least D's and he was flying and, a Nova mentor. And I think he went farther than all of us, you know, so it's not, it, you know, it's, you have to make the wing that you're flying work for you. And I'm going to call Cedar out here. Uh, you know, in the last show when we had him on, he, he talked about a pretty scary incident, uh, that happened at, at Marshall and I didn't call him out in the show, but I, because I didn't, it didn't occur to me at the time, but I thought about it afterwards. You know, if, if you go back and listen to that one, um, you'll hear him talk about, uh, he was flying with some, some really good pilots, uh, from Marshall one day and they got up and went over the back and to go over the back, you've got to clear these big, you know, high tension power lines. And so the first time he, he kind of turned to go and he realized he didn't have enough height. You know, I think he was on the Nivea cook, you know, so kind of a low end B and, uh, and then, so he went back to the, to the house thermal and got up and, uh, and went for it again, but he didn't have enough height. And so he realized he wasn't going to make it over the power lines, turned into the wind, realized there was a lot more wind than he thought, uh, thought, okay, well, I'll just top land here in front of these, in these tension lines, got a little bit lower. There was even more compression lift on the hill as there always is and couldn't really top land and got boosted back and went right through the power line. So the top of his wing hit the top line, his harness hit the bottom line, lost control of the wing, thought he was going to die. Uh, luckily the thing kind of reinflated right before he hit the ground. I did quite a bit of damage to the wing. Um, but then, but he walked away. So he got super lucky. And so I, so I asked him in the show, you know, well, Hey, you know, what, what went wrong there? What, what, you know, what happened? And he said, well, part of it was bad luck. And, I have to totally disagree with that. You know, he, he has to fly the wing that he has and, you know, and knowing that that wing doesn't have as good a glide, that means you got to get more height before you make that move. So I don't think there was much bad luck involved there. You know, I wasn't there. I can't say. Sounds but like I, there's some pretty good luck involved. <laughs> it sounds like there's a lot of good luck involved. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, so I, I mean, the, the point of that isn't to call Cedar out. The guy's getting after it. I love it. It's, it's awesome. Rad. But the, it's totally rad. But it's the, the point is, is, I think you need to, you know, one, you know, to avoid those incidences, you have to make really good calls on the equipment that you have. That wing's not holding him back. You know, it, it just means flying it a little bit differently, you know, and, and you're, you're not going to keep up with guys on, on comp wings and that's okay. So that, that brings up something. And I mean, this is an engineer question and I don't think you are. I certainly am not an engineer, but God, you had a recent guest on who was saying there, there really wasn't that much performance difference. It was like three or 5% between a D and a B or it, it was something where I kind of listened to it. And I was like, man, I should listen to that again. Um, and I guess my kind of open question is, is there really a difference if, you know, if there's two yeah, identical copies of Gavin, one's flying a B and one's flying a D, pretty obviously the, the D's going to do better. But I always wonder by how much and, and how much would Josh Cohn or Kriegel be limited if they all they could fly was, you know, a higher B? Um, would they start so losing I, competitions? Yeah, so I, I um, 
percentage wise, I don't remember that conversation, but I, and I am, and I'm the furthest thing from a wing designer there is. I'm, I'm like <laughs> you, I, I am not an engineer. Um, so I, I can't put a, I can't put a figure on it, but the differences are considerable. Uh, and you know, your, your glide difference is considerable uh, and your speed is considerable. What he might've been talking about is flying downwind. There's, there's very little difference. You okay. know, uh, when, when Will Gadd and I went across the Canadian Rockies, I was on a D he was on a B, um, you know, there was very rarely, uh, any discernible difference, but that was that was because there was the wind was typically either uh, cross to us or you know in our favor, blowing us downwind. Um, the times that it becomes really evident is uh, when you're using speed bar and when you're going into the wind. So you know no one is going to win uh, a World Cup on a B uh, against pilots that are on comp wings. That's it's. I mean there could be weird things happen. You know and every. Everybody bombs out and that guy sure. stays in the air and, you know, but, uh, but no, you know, just glider to glider, uh, the differences are, are pretty considerable. There's just, there's huge drag difference. Uh, and there's, you know, that the higher end wings are much more spanny. That's what makes them more dangerous, but they're, they're just, uh, they're much more efficient through the air. Okay, cool. Shit. I'll have to listen to that again. I, I guess I was wrong. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, I mean, those, those percentages might be, that, that actually might be accurate and it doesn't sound like much, but you know, when it comes to like comps, um, you know, it, the tiniest differences in, in glide and speed are, are everything, you know, it's, it's why two years ago, everybody is flying the Enzo too, because, uh, you know, the Niviac and the Gen were less than probably two or 3%, uh, lesser wing and that's everything i mean that there's no one no one's flying those wing well a few but um you know you look at that you look at the results these days and it's just ozone 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 so um and that happens that that you know the other companies will make a great wing you know next year potentially and it'll it'll all flip-flop but uh yeah at the comp level people you know it's the tiniest difference uh makes a huge difference when you're when you're flying around race course cool yeah, makes sense. I mean, look no further than uh, NASCAR or IndyCar or F1. I mean, little difference. Right, there. yeah. Yeah, hundreds of seconds, right? Yeah. Big results. Paragliding in general seems like such a feel sport. Um, it's it's not really super dependent on, on anything else. It doesn't matter if you're a phenomenal athlete or you're super strong. That has no bearing on whether or not you fly. Well, but it's it's also this really technical sport which is kind of the, the engineering side. So you're marrying basically the, the emotional side to the rational side of your brain. I'm going to ask you a question that I don't think anyone can answer, but I'd like to hear the response. Is that, can we, or can you talk a little bit about how you learn the technique of something when it's almost all feel? Golly, that is a good question. <laughs> I'm reminded of a line that Matt Beesner said in, in 500 miles to nowhere. He'd say, how does a paraglider work? It works by magic. <laughs> you look at that thing and it can't possibly work. It's got to be magic. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't need, I don't know if I can answer that. It's, it certainly, what's really interesting, I think, is that there are a lot of engineers in this sport and they, they have a rationality where I, I, I find that many of them don't get very excited in the air. And when I'm talking about excited, like they don't get freaked is easy right? because it's all a matter of working out the mechanics. 
uh, everything that's happening, there's a reason, you know, there's an action and a reaction. And, you know, so it's all very logical. I'm the opposite of that. I'm a complete feel guy and a kinetic learner. And um, but how to go about teaching that, I don't have a clue. And that might be because, I, you know, I don't do a lot of instruction. That's a good question, I think, maybe for, for somebody smarter than I am. Sure. I mean, it's like teaching people how to swim. You just kick them in the pool and let them yeah, figure it out. Yeah, exactly. And then the, the, there is there is a ton of technique, but it's it's not something that's easily transferable, especially because uh, you're not sitting right there next to them when they're doing it. You know, you're 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 talking to them on the radio yeah. and, and and talking them through it. And, you know, talking about weight shift and break pull, and you know, there's the obvious stuff like doing too much or too little. Uh, you know, like in SIV, the first time people do SIV, they never do it radically enough. You know, I always tell them to go in there like, hey, man, just when I, when he tells you to front, I'll grab those lines and yank them. You know, go for it. This is your opportunity. But, right. uh, you know, not just kind of like, oh, I don't know, tink, you know. But, uh, yeah, it's, I guess it's back to that whole time thing. Yeah. Magic's magic. I mean, right. that, that's probably the siren call of, of paragliding and these kind of sports that, that combine technic, uh, technical stuff and feel. So. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So jumping into some some other stuff, I just had some thoughts. Um, if there was a helmet that you could put on that had a little screen that came down in front of you, like a fighter pilot's helmet had a little heads-up display, and it would show you through, say, colors or gradients of colors where the thermals were and the wind was, is that something that you would want to use a bunch, or do you would you not get much enjoyment out of that after the novelty wore off? God, you know, I think I think every single one of us has thought about that, and uh, I hope that Google or it, I hope no one ever ever makes that. I think it would just rob us of the magic, and uh, it would make you know it would make the whole beauty of and the frustration of paragliding disappear, and and I think it would it would match everybody up. It'd be more like basketball. And, uh, you know, where you, all you needed was, was, a, was the leg and, you know, the good equipment and, and everybody could be potentially not the same, but pretty similar. Yeah, I hope they never invent that. I, I, I very much want to remain like a bird and, and, uh, or have the sensation that I'm a bird where it's, you know, where some days you're just on and it, it's working and it's magic and you feel like you had it and, you know, every day can't be like that. And that's what makes it so amazing. That's the, this is the only sport I've ever undertaken that's had me so totally wrapped for so long. You know, most sports I get into, I just dive into them cause they fascinate me and it's, and it's awesome. But I get to a certain point where i feel like it's i've either plateaued or i uh, realize it's I, I don't know it just loses its luster uh and paragliding is one of these things where i just know without feeling a shadow of a doubt that i'm never going to get you know uh, i'll always be able to get so much better and and i like that and i think if we had a tool like that it would just rob it of its essence it would allow you to to retro bolt the sky <laughs> There's plenty of people yeah. who don't want that. <laughs> yeah, totally. Bill Belcourt, I love it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, let's see, there's a, a fella you had on, I think he was a test pilot for, maybe it was Ozone, but he was talking about the um, the new materials coming in paragliders. I was just thinking kind of the, the next thing is, it seems like right now there's lines that are load lines, like they're the ones that kind of keep you attached to the wings and there's control lines. Is 
I'm imagining a lot of that disappearing. So that's only load lines. And then all the control stuff is worked via like a Wi-Fi, and you're flying much more of a solid wing and less of an inflated wing. Um, when you, I mean, do you, do you think about wing design and where it's going and what's next and like what you would want in the, the wing of the future? I, I don't much because again, my brain just doesn't, you know, I, I, when we were interviewing Bill Belcourt during 500 miles to nowhere, I asked him a similar question, you know, like it is, are we there? Is it just going to keep going? And he said, you know, I, I gave up 10 years ago on trying to, uh, anticipate what could potentially happen in this sport. I, you know, I thought we were done with, with advances in the mid nineties and look what's happened. They just keep getting better. It's like, I have no idea how they can get better, but they just keep getting better. And I'm kind of in the same ballpark and Bill is a radically more intelligent guy than I am and understands this stuff, you know, way better than I do. But I have to, I have to park myself in that same court. I just don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not Luke Armand. I just don't, you know, I, I go fly those things. I don't understand how they work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that, that we are carrying, you know, that our gear for the X Alps is going to be, you know, six and a half, seven kgs with no food and water. That is amazing. Jeez. I mean, that's just, that is, that is so awesome that we can, you know, fly a couple hundred miles in one day, potentially on a good day on, on stuff that's, you know, that's uh, that light. I, it's just phenomenal that, that the wings are, you know, that we're, uh, one of my next shows is going to be a, a redo with, with Jeff Shapiro because, you know, he's, he's gotten totally into paragliding the last year. He's just crazy about it. And he's, you know, he's been a hang glider forever. I think he's got close to 10,000 hours or something. Ooh. And, uh, and he, we just talked today and he's, he's so, he's so, he's so in love with it right now because he can put it on his back and go places, Yeah, you know, just can't do that with a hang glider. And so, you know, for sure they're going to keep getting lighter. You know, Niviak just came out with a tandem single surface tandem. It's like 1.2 kgs. I mean, that's just ridiculous. So, you know, I, I think that that side of it for me with my, you know, kind of love of bull bib and hike and fly is, is really cool. But I mean, I just, I don't understand how they're going to keep it. At some point they're going to hit the, you know, at some point it can't, keep going i wouldn't think but you know like they keep they they do so we'll see yeah i like i like that remote control idea that's wild yeah i mean at some point we we're supposed to to sail off the edge of the earth but uh still out there <laughs> right. on the wine dark sea right, um, right the second thing was just looking i mean i'm in san diego or the next thing was looking around on the map and seeing that baja is just this big spine running north to south um, I don't know if anyone's flown the length of it, and it just seemed like a, a pretty rad trip. Uh, maybe not as burly as anything else, but there's there's got to be something pretty cool in there. Yeah, and so I I have to say, uh, well, my comment about Alaska is 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 totally uh, that's very uncreative. You know, I mean there there are a million things to do in this sport, and I've got my eye on a ton of them. That your Baja idea is brilliant. Uh, Baja would be so rad uh that would be really neat and i don't believe anybody has done it so why not that'd be terrific uh it'd be really cool in fact but you know there are tons and tons and tons of lines all over the world and the the great thing about what happened with wing technology back in 2009 is it, it you know it went from you know 100 mile flight being a pretty big deal to 200 just overnight it doubled what we could do and and so uh, it just allows us to look at lines in completely new ways. And we have barely touched the surface. And 
I, one of my favorite lines in the Rockies Traverse is right at the very end when Will goes, you know, we can we can take these gliders and 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 fly into a place like this and come out on the other side. You know, where in the world can we can we do that? And the answer is everywhere. everywhere. You know, and so I, you know, we're 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 where you know I don't know surfing was 30 years ago. It's just we're at the we're at the very beginning of what's going to happen, and that's that's insanely exciting. So exciting, yeah. So the next next thing I've got is I was looking at Baja again. It's like, oh, is it possible to cross the Cortez Sea and not do it in a like a cheap shit way where you're doing it right at the the mouth of the old river? You're doing it somewhere down the by the tip, and I I really wonder about flying over oceans and water because. I mean, they must have, it's not like the the air over them is static. It can't all be sinking. There has to be something going on. And if you've, I mean, you've sailed, I've sailed, you you know that there's cumulus out there. So that means that they're thermals. It's got to be possible. Not, no, those cumulus are different. (laughs) Um, Are they? So yeah, they're, they're, you know, that's, it's, they're not, they're not being formed from, from, so much from heat you know you really need you do need dirt to make thermals um it's and certainly they're not supportable thermals you know the only way to really cross any kind of real body of water um is with a paramotor and the problem with that is you're you know you're a you have any kind of motor failure you're basically dead um you know there's there's not really you know if you have an like an easy way to eject before you hit the deck and have some kind of a, you know, you've either got a, a, a boat crew following you or something, but, you know, landing in the water with a paramotor is, is pretty much certain death. That That's not a good thing. I mean, you, it's not, it's not nice to go in the water with a, with the 80 pound contraption tied to your back. So that's metal. So as, as of now, I don't, I mean, maybe I'm just not creative enough, but I, yeah, I don't see that. I don't see that happening in any kind of a safe way. Okay. I was, I guess the other part was was thinking like, is there some way to tow way the way up over over the tip of Baja and just take off on one big long glide and have some massive paraglider that has huge glide? Well, you could work. Now you could work that out. Um, you know, you could. Work, in fact, Tom Payne has a really cool app where uh, you know you can put in uh, all the your, your basic variables. Uh, in this case, just height and distance, and con- assuming it's completely still air, or maybe preferably a whole lot of tailwind or something, and it, it'll just tell you if you're going to make it. You know, it'll tell you. Well, basically, it'll tell you the glide that you would need to make it, and then you know, you then you can interpolate like, okay, well, this wing I get a twelve to one glide, which would be extraordinary. It'd be a really good glide, and uh, and you know, then okay, I need seven thousand feet altitude or something. Yeah, sure. that's totally possible. Okay, so yeah, you're 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 more creative than I am. There's there's a maybe there. All right, <laughs> maybe yeah, there's a maybe. <laughs> and then I was looking at the foot launch distance record. Is that's still yours? Two hundred some odd miles. Yeah, two forty. So I was looking at the map again, looking down. Well, I have to say that the North American foot launch North record. American. The guys down in Brazil have gone way farther. So I was looking at the map and looking at Antarctica, and it's got the that little arm sticking out, going towards South America, and that's of course down the Roaring Forties, where there's tons and tons of wind. And so I was wondering what the yeah, what it would look like that would be a project to launch off some part of that mountain chain and just see how far you can ride ride that wind because it's going 50 60 miles an hour um, and, and see if that would be a, a new place to set the record 
So the problem with wind uh, in the mountains is it's insanely dangerous. And what, you know, the reason those guys are going so far in Brazil is they're flying in quite a bit of wind, but it's totally flat. You know, it's a desert. And so they're not flying in rotor. Um, the really, you know, my flight, uh, the reason I went that far was certainly because of the wind. You know, I was hitting 110, 120K uh, down the wind in a couple places in the flight. Dang. Uh, as long as I was on the windward side of stuff, it was fine. And as long as I was high, you know, when I was up 16, 18,000, it was, it was smooth and wonderful and just beautiful popping clouds that just happened to be coming out right now. I mean, I was totally in sync that day with what was going on on the ground. Um, but when I was low and a couple times on the lee side, it was full on combat flying and I would never want to do it again. Um, I mean, it was, it was one of those brilliant flights I've ever had in my life, but you know, you play that game a few times, you're going to lose. And so, yeah, the, you know, the problem with the Andes is the wind and they're in the mountains, you know, anything more than 30 K a wind is wicked dangerous. Um, it's just not, you know, and, and seven or eight years ago, that was 15 K. That's, I mean, the only reason we can fly in more wind now is because the wings are faster, but yeah, I mean, more than that, it is your, your, it's literally a flip of the coin and, you know, most of the time it's going to come out the wrong side. So, you know, for, for flying in any kind of real wind, you need to be doing it in the flats. And so that's why they're going big in Australia. You know, they're it, places that they're towing. Brazil's really unique because the reason those guys have the foot launch record is because, you know, they're, they're popping off a little tiny hill and, and, and it's really windy. It's kind of sketchy launch. And then they fly over the back and then it's basically flat. Um, so they're able to fly in a lot more wind safely. But even then, you know, you get power lines or even small trees or houses and, you know, things can be pretty, you gotta be looking ahead, but wind is just not fun. You don't think you can get up high enough and get in, get into a wave where you're just much, much higher than you would be normally. And ride that. Okay, wave waves different. Yeah, I mean that's how the sailplanes go huge, uh, for sure. And some crazy person might potentially do that, but you know, wave in a paraglider is uh, people have flown in wave. You know, Will got caught in wave in, in Colorado, and Hansa got was in wave in the last X Alps. I mean, so it does happen. It can happen. Planning for it can be pretty tricky, but uh, and I don't really. I mean, Hansa would be the one to ask about that because his meteorology background. But, you know, again, wind, um, paragliders don't do that well in a lot of wind. And so, uh, and from what I understand, wave is not, not necessarily really friendly. Uh, so I think that, you know, but hang gliders have done it, so we can do it. You know, so yes, I think that, I think the answer, I think the answer is yes to that, but I'm not, the, I'm not the best person to ask. All right. So two out of two out of three are possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe yeah, three I, like four. I can't wait to see what you're going to be doing in a few years i love it yeah it's gonna be fun <laughs> cool well that gavin that's all the um all the questions that i had written down man thanks a ton for your time and, and thanks for making this thing public i think it's really cool what you're doing thank you nick i appreciate it those were great questions and uh yeah i've got a huge smile on my face thinking about all this madness that that's what it is it's madness it's awesome so thank you and uh and and let's let's do it again see you soon yeah yeah maybe when i, when I actually get to beyond more than an hour fucking hey <laughs> cool all right but talk to you soon sounds good sounds good man thanks 
I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, it was kind of cool to get back to the beginning and think about all the things we all need to be thinking about a lot more of. I hope you found that really valuable. Thanks to Nick for uh, asking all those great questions. Um, check out the show notes from this show, uh, cloudbasedmayhem.com. Uh, down in the show notes, you'll find the links to the videos we talked about in the show. Uh, compliments to Nick, uh, some really great material there that'll give you a great visual on what uh, fantastic ground handling should look like. Also, go check out his show uh, at the Paleo Treats Podcast, Paleo Treats Podcast, excuse me, uh, and check out the stuff that he and his wife are making. They are absolutely delicious, I promise you, and that's going to be a big part of my fuel for the X-Alps. As always, all we ask for is a buck a show. If you've got something out of this show or one of the previous episodes, or if you're just finding the podcast, uh, go back and check out some of the incredible material we've gotten from so many great pilots over the last couple years. Uh, Cody Matank, Will Gad, Jeff Shapiro, uh, so much good material there and a lot of fantastic advice. Uh, I've just returned from Salt Lake. We've got some fantastic shows coming up. Uh, the Bill Belcourt podcast, which I've been promising, just bang that out today. Uh, so that'll be coming up shortly. Sat down with Chris Santa Croce with Superfly. Uh, I've got a whole bunch of really fantastic shows coming up in the weeks ahead. So, uh, but yeah, if you want to contribute to the show, this is a listener-supported podcast. Uh, go to thecloudbasedmayhem.com. You'll find all the links there. And we've got a new way for you to support the show through Patreon, patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. Uh, if you go to that page, you'll see some really cool footage that's actually not even in the film uh, from North Unknown. Uh, you can see that, and you can kind of just set it and forget it. It's like supporting uh, uh, NPR or something where you just uh, make a monthly donation. Uh, it doesn't go up from that. Uh, your donations go a long way to making this possible. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, and we'll see you on the next one. Cheers. Cheers.